According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for the purpose of growth. Once again, our scripture is Luke 18. Luke 18. Two parables in the first 14 verses. We are uh, looking at parable number two, which is uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector, verses 9 through 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's uh, not accidental that those two items get mentioned in verse 9. If you are engaged in the first activity, I believe the natural consequence of that is the second activity. If you view, if your confidence is your own self-righteousness, then what's wrong with these other people? Why aren't they as good as you? And uh, it, it, it's a fallacy that produces an even greater fallacy, and that's the sadness of the whole message. And then it gets illustrated by the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you want to pick a character that's going to illustrate self-righteousness. You can't do any better than a Pharisee, and so that gets picked out there. And then uh, anybody that is contemptible, uh, you can't pick out a character any more contemptible than a tax collector. And so both of these characters in the story portray their picture very well. And, of course, it's the tax collector who's justified. It's the tax collector who has divine viewpoint, who's praying properly before the Father's throne of grace so we got a good start on it last week and i want to be able to wrap it up here this week and if we really get going fast enough then we uh, can move on to episode 32 which is the doctrine on divorce that comes out of matthew chapter 19 so we'll just see how far we get with it here today before we begin or before we do any of that let's make sure we're in fellowship make sure we're humble under the authority of truth shall we pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege that it is for us to assemble again today. Father, it's a grace provision that allows us the health and transportation and finances and schedule to be here today. Father, uh, we commit to you our time of study, asking that you would set aside distractions, that you would hedge us about, protect us from anyone that would come in here and try to uh, disrupt our proceedings or bring us to harm. Father, uh, use this hour to glorify your Son as you equip us with a greater understanding, a greater appreciation, and a greater conviction, Father, that we must be about your business. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have main point one, which is the parable of the persistent widow, with a whole bunch of subpoints, and then main point two, which is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And this is where we are in verses 9 through 14. We saw a week ago, the parable is addressed to those having been self-persuaded types. Uh, They are righteous in their own eyes. And the reason why is because they have persuaded themselves of that uh, reality. And whether it is a reality or not is debatable, but for them it is their reality. And uh, I'm sure you've encountered all kinds of folks. They're, they're operating in a different reality than yours. <laughs> all right. Hopefully they're, uh, you know, you and I are operating in God's reality because that's the only real reality. 
But uh, the evil of Satan and, and fallen humanity and so forth is that in our vain imaginations, we can create our own perceived realities. And it's, it really is a sad situation. And this guy is absolutely convinced. He is having been persuaded, having been self-persuaded. And it really is a very vivid, perfect tense. And I love the perfect tense. My favorite tense of all the Greek tenses because it speaks of a past completed action that maintains a present, ongoing, uh, even eternal Result, see, unless something changes, uh, this past completed action has the present ongoing eternal result. This guy is self-righteous and he will remain self-righteous. He will continue to be self-righteous until something steps in and humbles him and removes that self-righteousness. He has convinced himself that he has made it. And uh, this is a kind of guy that if, uh, if it was the prophet Isaiah delivering this message, he'd be uh, a little crude maybe, and he'd be calling this guy a, a, a minstrel rag. He'd be calling him a filthy garment. Say, well, the Lord doesn't use that language, but that's still the truth of what's communicated here. All of our righteousness is as a filthy rag, and God wants no part of it. And this guy is living it out in his life, and he believes he's the best thing uh, that ever walked into that temple. So it's addressed to those having been self-persuaded righteous types. The verb patho is actually a beautiful verb. And it's one that I would just encourage you to study and, and embrace and recognize what uh, does it mean to be persuaded. Because God is in the business of persuasion. He persuades us. Patho is very linked throughout the New Testament with the verb pistuo. Pistuo is our verb to believe. And pistis is our noun for faith. And that connection between persuasion and faith is a powerful one. God does not expect us to be mindless robots, uh, unthinkingly obedient or unthinkingly believing and trusting in nothing without thought. But he makes promises and he persuades us as to the faithfulness of those promises. And under persuasion or under conviction, then, we place our confidence in what God has promised. So there very much is a unity between persuasion and faith, between patho and pistuo. And they're often used in tandem with each other. They're often used in contrast with each other and uh, in different ways. It becomes, a, it becomes a very precious study for you and I to consider uh, who it is that we have believed and what it is that we are persuaded. Because we know whom we have believed and we are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've entrusted to him against that day. Now these self-persuaded righteous types, these filthy rags as it were, they view others with contempt. And as I said a moment ago, I believe the first is the cause of the second. It certainly is motivational, if not causative, that when you when you view yourselves as righteous, when you trust in yourself, when you trust in yourself, it, it, how sad is that? Well, if you're that delusional and you believe you are trustworthy and that your abilities are getting you there and that you measure up and you're pleasing God and aren't you wonderful, you know, then it's only natural that other people that aren't as awesome as you, <laughs> clearly, uh, they don't measure up. And, and it's only right that you should feel superior because you are superior. Okay, nothing wrong with feeling superior over those that are inferior to you. If that's your mindedness, you got this? All right, I'm speaking with, you know, some humor here. I understand that. 
And, it, you know, it would be laughable if it wasn't so sad. Now, the verb exuthaneo, E-X-O-U-T-H-E-N-E-O, exuthaneo. And the idea that something is just not even worth your time, it's not even worth your consideration, see. We've got idioms that are similar in English. We talk about out of mind, out of sight. We talk about out of thought. It's, it's beneath your thought. It's beneath your notice. It's so contemptible, it's not even worth your consideration. All right. And, uh, and sadly, uh, you know, we, we develop those attitudes. Human beings develop those attitudes. I say we, excusing present company, of course. But human beings get those attitudes where human beings become prideful against other human beings. And it's wrong. So not only do we have it here in Luke 18.9, but it comes back again in Luke 23.11. Uh, Acts 4.11, those are the Luke usages. Luke, of course, wrote both his gospel and the book of Acts. And then the key, key passage in Romans 14. I would love it if every believer read Romans 14, uh, you know, what did I say last week? Three times a day, every day for ten years or something like that. You know, just read it over and over and over again till you have it memorized. Romans 14. And uh, if more believers had Romans 14 memorized, then we'd have fewer uh, glitches in a local church. I think we could remove uh, 90% of all personality uh, conflicts in a local church if believers were uh, digesting Romans 14. We have grace towards one another. We don't hold one another with contempt. We allow each other the convictions that we're walking by. and We understand and appreciate the convictions believers are walking by. And everything that goes into Romans 14. Well, that's where I got distracted last week and where uh, we ran out of time. These other uses of exuthaneo, though, are uh, ones that we ought to be familiar with, and we should be, particularly the 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 28, 6, 4, and 16, 11. 1 Corinthians 1, 28. The base thing of the world and the despised God has chosen. And, you know, all of the uh, concepts about what does the world despise. The world's got its own standard. It's not God's standard. And the world can despise a lot of things. And you've probably noticed that much of what the world despises is the things that God actually appreciates. God exalts. He magnifies. He chooses and selects. You know, your, in fact, your dedication to Bible teaching is despicable. Uh, from most worldly viewpoints. You're just wasting your time. Why are you paying attention to this mythological book? Why are you, you know, there's plenty of other fruitful things you can do on a Sunday morning, like, you know, sleep off your hangover from Saturday night or, <laughs> you know, something that you could be doing on a Saturday. You know, you could be mowing your yard. You could be walking the dog. You could be uh, hanging out at the park or whatever you want to do. Why do you waste so much time going to church? Why do you waste so much time reading this Bible? This is just mythology, see, in the world's viewpoint. What you and I do is despicable. It's despised. It's, it's not worthy of consideration. It's such a waste, see. And so, yet that's the very thing that God has chosen, the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. And thank God for that. You know, he picks the 12 biggest knuckleheads he can find in Galilee and turns them into disciples, and they become the apostles of the church. Isn't that amazing? World history transformed right there. 
And uh, he continues to do that in his selection of pastors and evangelists and, and servants that he uses in the outworking of the church age. We have our own standard, of course, and there may be things that the world will uh, exalt and we will view it as being of no account. And we will view it as being irrelevant to our Christian walk. And that's where it gets turned around in 1 Corinthians 6, is that when you sue your brother, when you go to court against a Christian to try to resolve some church dispute, you're actually um, improperly uh, giving uh, jurisdiction to a court that has no jurisdiction. You are submitting yourself to a judicial opinion uh, under the view of someone whose opinion doesn't matter. They're out of their realm. These earthly judges are of no account in the church. And so, and of course, we understand this. This is dealing with issues amongst ourselves. When you have a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before saints. We're saints. We're set apart ones. We're God's children. We take care of our business. We don't go to the world's method to solve our problems. That's insanity. And it's also uh, disrespectful to our Father's house. We're supposed to function under His house rules. And so we're going to go to the unrighteous to resolve our situation. And uh, isn't that amazing? You know, I know of two cases now. Sad. Breaks my heart. One in Colorado and one in Texas where um, <laughs> a different flock wanted a, a church's name. See? And they came in and took that name. And the first church that had that name already said, uh, excuse me, but uh, <laughs> we've been here 20 years. This is this is us. This is our name. And, and, and uh, the, the other... Attitude was like, well, sorry, take us to court. <laughs> you know, can't do that. First Corinthians 6, we're not going to do that. And so now this church has a different name. All right. Same thing happened in Denver and it happened now in, in uh, Horseshoe Bay, Texas, as far as uh, that goes. Well, we're not going to go to a, to a uh, judge. In fact, I know one pastor that actually teaches this from the standpoint of why uh, divorce. We're going to be in divorce here the next episode. But how do you stand before an earthly judge to get a court order nullifying your, your marriage and getting a divorce decree? Anytime you go to an earthly judge to validate a divorce decree, what are you doing? When you took vows before God in heaven, what are you doing? Another reason why uh, certain things are out of bounds in God's program. Well, we'll deal with that as well. Then the last use in Corinthians is 1611. 1611. What is that number jog thinking? 1611. Oh, that was the, the year of the King James Bible. It was the 1611 King James Bible. Okay. Well, 1 Corinthians 1611. And the... Uh, problem Paul was concerned that uh, when he sent Timothy to Corinth that they were just going to despise him they were going to reject what he had to say which is not unusual since three-fourths of them didn't like Paul either <laughs> you know uh, there was only one-fourth of the group in Corinth that gave Paul any kind of credit for anything and uh, the idea that he's going to send his disciple he's going to send his uh, pastoral student in there to have some kind of a ministry well Corinth uh, 
Paul didn't have a lot of confidence that Corinth was going to uh, be humble under that. So they say here, let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace that he may come to me for I expect him with the brethren. You understand in verse 10, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. And uh, a lot of things we can view with respect to this, but why would... Uh, you know, you're maybe you're asking the question, why would anybody despise Timothy? I mean, goodness, here's Timothy, <laughs> the co-author of six of our New Testament books and the recipient of two of the pastoral epistles and a tremendous hero of the first century church. Well, that's our perspective. From their perspective, he's just a kid. What does he know? All right. And this is what happens when you lose divine viewpoint objectivity and you start to look at earthly things. And... Um, Besides, I don't know that by the writing of 1 Corinthians, he's really all that much of a kid anymore, having traveled with Paul for 10 or more years uh, in any event. Objectivity. You've got to be humble under the authority of teaching, as, as this assembly is. This congregation is excellent in terms of objectivity towards the Word of God. And your submission isn't to a person. Your submission is to the authority of the Word of God. And so it doesn't matter who's up speaking and so forth. And and uh, one of the, I'm looking forward to getting back to our Sunday morning, Sunday evening routine again on Sundays in the new building. And the, one of the benefits there is we get the rotational speakers that we get to have back again on Sunday nights. And that would include some of the older men, uh, Glenn Carnegie and Warren Dowd and so forth. But it also includes the younger men, the men that are in training, the student pastors. And, and uh, we're going to give uh, Radley and B3 and LaRosa and, and uh, these guys are going to have opportunities to speak. And they need them. And uh, if you've got the, the attitude that, oh, well, what's he going to teach me? You know, what does this kid know? And that's the wrong attitude. All right. The truth, the reality is the word of God is going forth. The Holy Spirit is ministering. This is a gifted believer who's training his gift. What are you doing with yours? <laughs> All right. And are you humble enough to recognize that God will minister? He can teach through a donkey. He can teach through any of us. All right. And uh, there is no one, if uh, any gifted communicator can teach you, I don't care how long you've been saved or any other, any other situation at all trying to encourage these guys over breakfast this morning the very first bible class i ever taught back in 1991 the very first one i was nervous as anything and i'll get out the worst thing of all was that dorothy braun was sitting right there in the front row which was horrible the woman been a pastor's wife for 40 years had more doctrine than all have in 40 years from now i mean she just an amazing intimacy with scripture amazing and i'm sure she caught me because i know i misquoted a verse or something in the process of that class you know i cite something and i give the wrong address and you know dorothy's sitting right there and she knows right off the bat that i'm lost okay <laughs> and yet and yet what's the reality god has gifted servants that he trains he equips he uses and he communicates and that's what we want to try to encourage these guys all these guys that are training their gift have to uh, have to recognize that. All right. Anyway, a little bit nostalgic. We're moving into the new building. We're thinking back over 15 years and a lot of uh, a lot of good memories back in the day. All right. So I want what I'm saying is I'm going to say this again on Sunday. I'm going to say this in an upcoming newsletter. Is that uh, as we get these uh, teaching rotations back up and running again, this congregation needs to come on board and be supportive and be encouraging and uh, encourage these men as they're training their gifts and uh, 
preparing to uh, to pastor churches someday, to, to shepherd flocks someday. We uh, want to build them up now as uh, this is the assignment God has given us. All right, that's 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 10.10 10 is the last Corinthian use of ex uthaneo. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. You know, not only did they despise Timothy, but they despised Paul. They said that, uh, well, he writes a good letter. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think anyone could write a good letter if the Holy Spirit's inspiring Scripture through you, you know. His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. His speech is contemptible. And that's, uh, you know, yeah, just dismiss him because of his of how he looks, you know, just blow off anything he has to say because of the way he says it, uh, you know, isn't that remarkable uh, to me? This is playing out right now in modern politics. To me, this is the whole thrust of why they hate Sarah Palin so much. Don't you ever consider that? Just because of some of her expressions and the way she talks and different things. And it's just, it's remarkable. You know, can we not be distracted by how they look and what they sound like? And can we actually digest the content of what they're saying? All right. Because it goes the other way, too. <laughs> There's some guys who look dazzling and are real slick in the way they speak. But boy, we better pay attention to what they're saying because the direction they're going is frightening. Galatians 4.4. 4. I'm sorry, 4.14. And uh, the Galatian church didn't have the hang-ups the Corinthians had. And that's to their glory. That uh, whatever his deformity was, they handled it. They handled it. These verses seem familiar. Did we look at these last week? No, okay. Knowing that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And it's, it's kind of, we don't know the whole background on this because the only clues we have are here and in the brief sketch of what happened there in the book of Acts. But whatever it was, I think it drove Mark away. This was This coincided with when John Mark departed. And whatever it was, if John Mark just couldn't deal with it anymore, he thought maybe they were cursed or something else was going on because Paul got struck with this uh, disease or this illness, deformity, whatever it was, it, it was the same point in that first missionary journey that they went from Cyprus across to, uh, across to Asia Minor there in the Galatian region. And then um, other things happened there too. Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city, left for dead. There were some horrible things that happened there, including this uh, illness, this deformity. Now, it's called an illness, a bodily illness, in verse 13. And because of that bodily illness, that he preached the gospel there for the first time. You know, what circumstances does God use to detour people into <laughs> different venues or different places or different things? And instead of grumbling about the circumstances, say, hey, you know what? God's using this to put me here. And because of this uh, illness... There was a delay in the travels. I think John Mark's abandonment probably cost him time and money as well. And so there's more delay in their travels. And uh, so they end up in Galatia. Well, good thing, you know, lucky for God that that worked out that way because there was some positive volition there and the ministry bore fruit. And uh, there was also some grace involved. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition. No, it wasn't easy. 
It was called a trial. It was a test. They had to evaluate whether or not they could listen to this guy or pay attention to him or even be around him. Um, so it was a trial, but you did not despise or loathe. And that's to their credit and, and for the glory of Jesus Christ. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. And so uh, we have the use of it there. Anyway, this is all illustrating the loathing that the Pharisee had for the tax collector and for anyone that wasn't as good as him. Anyone that didn't measure up to him. And of course, the Pharisees that were better than him, he would try to aspire to or somehow cut them down to where he could climb up to their level. Uh, but he also understood, of course, that those Pharisees that were better than him had the same loathing for him that he has for those that are beneath him in this pecking order, see. Uh, that's the way legalism works. You despise those that aren't as good as you, and you know that those that are, you're not as good as, they're despising you too. How sad. And that's where we have it. All right, the last use then is First uh, Thessalonians 5.20, which uh, I would urge each one of us to evaluate in our own perspective where it says, do not despise prophetic utterances. Uh, we don't have prophetic utterances as in terms of divine revelation today, but we do have the Word of God. We have Bible teaching, doctrinal priorities. And so when it says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, we then have the steps for how you bring that about. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But hold of it, examine everything carefully, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. In other words, stay in fellowship, confess your sins, don't quench the spirit, and stay humble under the authority of God's word. That's how you can live out the trinity there of rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. All right, so these are the self-persuaded righteous types, and boy, nobody else measures up. Nobody else measures up. Okay? And that's what makes this so sad. That's why this is the antithesis of grace. Grace allows you to have a relaxed mental attitude towards one another. It allows you to, to love unconditionally one another because you're not preconditioning your love based upon whether they measure up in your eyes. You can love sacrificially. You can love unconditionally. You can accept people for how they are. You can give your brother time to grow and he can give you time to grow. It's a powerful thing. All right. Principle. Trusting self motivates contempt. And we've seen that. But trusting the Lord motivates courageous evangelism. There's a principle here in Philippians 1.14. And I believe this is the most vital consideration in enduring affliction according to 2 Corinthians 1.9. Trusting self motivates contempt, but trusting the Lord motivates courageous evangelism and is the most vital consideration in enduring affliction. 2 Corinthians 1.9 so Let's look at these. Philippians 1.14 Philippians 1.14 You know, if you're a self-righteous type and you think you're measuring up and you're, you're pretty good and uh, others are, are, are crummy, um... What kind of gospel do you preach? You really don't, do you? Because the gospel is nothing about you. (laughs) 
The gospel is trusting Christ. The gospel is faithing what Christ accomplished. The gospel is entirely, we don't measure up for anything. You know what? I deserve the lake of fire. So if you are having confidence in your own righteousness and you're viewing others with contempt, you're going to be the most pathetic evangelist the church has ever seen. And here's the contrast in Philippians 1.14. And we're not trusting self. We should be trusting the Lord. And so he says here, Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And I love that. We were talking about that just a minute ago. Can we recognize the, the conditions of where we are and what's going on? And we don't have to like them. <laughs> but if we can acknowledge that God is sovereign in our lives and he places us where he wants us, then we can be thankful that he is so faithful to, to accomplish what's pleasing in his sight. And maybe it's with hindsight then that we can look back and say, oh, wow, this does work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. My circumstances. What, what are his circumstances? He's in prison right now when he's writing this. He's not moaning about being in prison. He says, you know what? Here I am and God's using me. And I'm, there's more fruit being born because I'm here right now than would be in other conditions. Uh, the fellow I go and visit in Huntsville once a month, he'll tell you the same thing. He's been humbled in ways that never would have happened had he not been arrested and convicted. He's, he's training his gift in ways he never would have trained and, and understood had he not been arrested and convicted. We ought to be able to rejoice over those circumstances when we can acknowledge that he is the one that has sovereignty, that he is the one that directs our paths. We run with endurance the race that's set before us. Well, who's, who sets that race? He does. That's his sovereignty. That's his wisdom. I've never made any secret of the fact that 20 years ago, I did not want to come to Texas. I did not want to. But I praise God every day that he brought me here. It's where I needed to be. It's where I got my gift trained. It's where I got my uh, ministry. It's where I found my wife. It's where all kinds of things happen. Good things happen in Texas. All right, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. Paul would have never had a chance to evangelize the Praetorian Guard. I mean, this is like the elite of the Roman soldiers. This is the, the uh, secret service of the day protecting Caesar. This is the, this, uh, these are the, uh, the, the commandos that, you know, just... A notch above special forces as far as the Roman legions are concerned. And Paul's got a chance to preach the gospel to these guys. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. You see how that works? Confidence in the Lord. Look what that motivates. Courageous evangelism. Now if confidence is in self, that can be shaken. Confidence in self, if it's placed into a different context, then you're out of sorts because you're out of your comfort zone. You're out of where you're normally confident. See, uh, you know, get me out of this room, get me out of out of in front of you guys. And I despise, hate, I'm scared, terrified of public speaking. Why is that? Because this is my gift. This is my ministry. This is my realm. This is where I belong. 
Out there? Ooh. No. Uh-uh. Okay. Big difference. Well, if your confidence is in the Lord, then you have, trusting in the Lord, you have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And there it is. And this then is, becomes the most vital consideration in enduring affliction. The whole impact of what God's been teaching us out of Second Corinthians, that we don't lose heart, that we can endure whatever it is that he's assigned for us to do. Are we going to trust in ourselves or are we going to trust in God? Well, when you have the sentence of death within yourself, what are you going to do? When you're excessively burdened beyond strength, what are you going to do? This is the hyperbolistic burden here, by the way, the hooperbolo afflictions so that you despair even of life. I mean, when your angelic conflict gets that degree and you actually start to ponder whether or not uh, departing this realm is an is a ekbasis, is that the way of escape? You know, God provides the way of escape and you start to wonder, hmm, maybe, uh, maybe dying is the way to get out of this. <laughs> That's pretty far, isn't it? Okay. And uh, oftentimes when you're that deep into the, into the affliction, uh, you may not have divine viewpoint working on uh, at every level. Well, that's where you've got to stop and say, wait a minute, am I trusting in myself or am I trusting in God? And that's the contrast there in verse 9. We would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. <laughs> you know, and you know the same people I know in a lot of cases and a lot of the um, illustrations for this. But uh, when I think to a number of different times that God has ramped up the testing and ramped up the testing and ramped up the testing. This right here is the very issue that he's trying to deal with. He's trying to break down pride. He's trying to convince a human, a puny, human being creature, you know, like the Lord finally confessed. He said, I'm a worm and not a man. He's trying to convince us to stop trusting in ourselves. And so we have this pride that says, oh, I can do this. I'm all right. Turns it up a notch. Oh, I'm all right. Turns it up a notch. And, you know, at some point, <laughs> we run out of being all right long before he ever runs out of those notches to keep turning it up, right? He's so faithful. And he's going to learn longer keeping and say, I'm in his hands. I'm a, I'm a recipient of his mercy. And so uh, let's stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting the God of heaven who raised Christ from the dead, who's raising us from the dead and setting us in his glory for all eternity. That's such an important principle there. All right. Probably should have broken that down into two principles, but we'll let it go. <laughs> Point C. Here's the Pharisee's prayer request. Actually, he's not requesting anything. He's just celebrating how great he is. <laughs> the point C, the Pharisee thanked God that his works made him superior. His works made him unlike others. And unlike others means better. The Pharisee thanked God that his works made him unlike others. 
You, know, you read this, you read these words, and it just seems ludicrous, doesn't it? It just seems absolutely ludicrous. Who would voice such things? And yet, maybe it gets left unvoiced, but is this not the attitude that every self-righteous person has? Maybe they're not so far off the deep end that they voice it out loud, but it clearly is in their mentality. It's in their attitude. It shapes their thinking. Of course, in the parable, he gives voice to what's in the thinking. So the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you. Not that you're awesome and wonderful. I thank you that I'm awesome and wonderful. How blasphemous. This is to me be the glory. Great things I have done. I thank you that I am not like other people. And that's the rest. That's others. That's everybody but himself. It's the same phrase that's in verse 9 when it says he viewed others. He viewed the rest. He views everyone but him with contempt. God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone but me. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Pointing right here to the guy. And why is he confident? Why is he trusting? Is it because God was so awesome to turn him into this? Or it's because he earned it. He worked for it. Yeah, look at this. I fast twice a week. Clearly that makes him better than, than other people. I pay tithes of all that I get. So he's banking on what he's done. This, um, you know, this is this is identical. I read and I were talking about this last night. This is like the crowd of the great white throne. And they go up there and they say, Lord, Lord, I did this. I did this. I did this. And they got a long list of what they did. And yet he says, depart from me. I never knew you. If, uh, you know, if we're cataloging what we've done. We're, we got the wrong hard attitude to this whole process. And I don't believe at the judgment. Now, I know at the judgment seat of Christ, we will give an account. But I don't believe that account we're going to give is an itemized list on what we've accomplished. I believe the account we give, because Scripture describes it, the account we give is going to be confessing Christ to the glory of God the Father. The account we give is every knee will bend, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when you stand in the judgment seat of Christ and give an account, don't think that you've got to produce a laundry list of what you've done. Because you didn't do anything. Okay, You're going to stand there at the judgment seat of Christ and then the Christ will say, alright, give an account. I'm a sinner saved by grace. You did the work. That's why I'm here. And uh, the, the reward, the, the gold, silver, and precious stones that gets purified and gets rewarded and the treasure that gets bestowed and, the, and all of that, it's not us telling God what we've done. It's God telling us what He did through us. What He did in spite of us. And how awesome He was able to get stuff done in spite of how human and temporal and pathetic we are. Most of which we'll never know until we get there. I don't think we know the half. The half has never been told. I don't think the half of 1% has ever been told. I don't think we have a clue. Everybody we've impacted, everybody we've blessed, everybody we've benefited, 
Occasionally, a little glimmer comes along as a as a, a human encouragement in temporal circumstances, but the bulk of it, we we have no idea, none. I've I've led people to Christ before. I didn't even know until years later. Other people meet them and say, "Oh, you know Pastor Bonner and and uh, oh, he led me to Christ." And uh, they come back to me and say, yeah, you know, when you were working in the jail, this person here was a nurse and, and she, she told me that you led her to Christ. I said, no, I didn't. I gave her the gospel. She rejected it. Didn't want to have any conversation. Hated even talking about it. I had no clue. Evidently, something uh, was working later on after that conversation was over with. I don't know. I just know that 10 years after the fact or whatever it was, five, 10 years after the fact, I guess, somebody else uh, comes into contact with that person and they said, oh, yeah, yeah. Your pastor led me to Christ. Well, <laughs> I can't boast over that, can I? Because I didn't even know what was happening. Say, Christ gets the glory. And that's what the judgment seat's going to be. He's going to lay out all these gold, silver, and precious stones and say, See what I did through you? Maybe you knew some of it. I don't think you didn't even know the fringes. So uh, here's this guy documenting a long list of what he's done. The tax collector, what's he documenting? Nothing. Asking for mercy. Recognition of his unworthiness. Full awareness that even even being in prayer is, is grace. Why why does God listen to us? So the Pharisee thanked God that his works made him made him unlike others. The tax collector pleaded for God's mercy despite his works. <laughs> right? Despite his works. The Pharisee was all dazzled by his works, figured it earned him something. The tax collector knew his works were no good. I'm a sinner, but be merciful. Be merciful to me, the sinner. And he's the one that's justified. He's the one that's justified. So the tax collector standing some distance away and they're all in the temple, and however they were positioned or however they were standing, but evidently, um, and we know this because of Matthew 6 and elsewhere, when the Pharisees prayed, they loved to have prominent positions. They loved to be standing either up front or on a, on a step or somewhere where they could be um, seen, heard, observed. Everyone would, uh, you know, bask in his glow as he prayed so magnificently. And, um, but now standing at a distance... Meaning what? Meaning he probably just slipped in a back door somewhere. He's standing off in a corner. He's not making a big show of anything. He's certainly not praying so that everybody can hear what he's he's saying. And he's um, not lifting up his eyes. He's just beating his breast. Some of that's cultural. Some of that's idiomatic. But we understand it's it's an expression of um, sorrow. Saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Every day is mercy. Every day is grace. Man, I get one more day, one more Bible class to teach, one more day to to minister, one more day to lay up treasure in heaven, one more day to learn something. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. So when the services were over and they left the temple and the tax collector went back to his house and the Pharisee went back to his house, the... um, it was the tax collector that was justified. Okay? 
This isn't positional justification that has anything to do with salvation. This is the experiential justification that deals with how we're conducting our lives, like we study in the book of James and other places. I think, too, we we usually break down justification into two realms, the salvation justification, where we're declared righteous, the experiential justification, where our life and how we live, our faith, the fruit that we bear, is a testimony to, to righteousness. Uh, and and that's, that's good. I, I, I teach that. Pastor Theme taught that. I think that's a great way to, to differentiate between positional justification, experiential justification. Uh, but I wonder, in the context of this passage here, and something I'm going to chew on for a while, and maybe if I can find other scriptures to combine and, and build and, and work it through, I wonder if there is not a third category of justification that in particular operates in a prayer uh, context because this is a prayer setting for this story. And at one point is the work of prayer, the work of righteousness, a feature for uh, justification. So uh, for the time being, I'll leave it as a James uh, pattern experiential justification. But down the road, I want to look at this some more and and continue to put some thought into it and see if uh, there may be something else there. So this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone. Everyone. This isn't just a general rule of thumb. This is an absolute guarantee from the Father of glory. Everyone. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. What I have here, and I even drew a picture. God's judicial evaluation... What we have here is a spectrum. Consider, and I'm calling this the exaltation-humility spectrum. (laughs) Obviously, the Pharisee was there on the exaltation end. And the tax collector was down there on the humility end. And generally, you and I are going to be somewhere in that spectrum. We may not be quite as humble as the tax collector. We could be approaching that. We might not be, hopefully, we're not as arrogant and, and exaltative as the tax collector. But or as the Pharisee, but there could be moments that we approach that in our, in our pride. So think of the exaltation-humility spectrum, because God evaluates that, and then He turns it around. God's judicial evaluation of our exaltation-humility spectrum produces an inversely proportionate humiliation-exaltation spectrum. He turns it around. So this spectrum from humility to arrogance, God turns it around. And in the eternal rewards, there's exaltation and there's shame. And that's God's judicial evaluation. (laughs) Like Paul's rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians, who regards you as superior besides yourself? (laughs) All right? Is there a second opinion on that? Besides you, who is as amazed with you as you are? Because think about it. The judgment seat of Christ is not a self-evaluation, self-checkout situation there. The Father is giving those awards. And He's given all judgment to the Son, but you understand that. 
And so Paul asked that question of the Corinthians. Who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, when you, when you identify grace, then you can testify all that I am, I am by the grace of God. All that I do, I do by the grace of God. I can't brag about anything. So here's the picture. Is that too small? You've got exaltation, humility across the top. 100% exaltation on one end, 100% humility on the other end, maybe a 50-50 balance in the middle. Okay, And so ask yourself, where are you? Are you more humble than you're prideful? Are you more prideful than you're humble? Are you somewhere in the middle? Are you closer to one end? Okay. And by the way, there could be different, uh, different uh, places where you fall on this spectrum depending upon the activity you're talking about or the, the thing you're talking about. You know, you might rank pretty humble in, in one area of life but pretty boastful in another area of life. And God turns that around. We, uh, we operate in the exaltation, humility spectrum, but when, the, when God's judgment comes down, it becomes humiliation that He enforces upon us and true exaltation when He magnifies us. And obviously, Jesus Christ is the pinnacle there. None of us are going to have the exaltation that Jesus Christ has from His Father. He is the one that has received the name that is above every name. Now, you're going to have a name. Thank God. I'm going to have a name. Every church-age saint is going to have a new name because we're bride of Christ. And we will, give, we will be given a name. And our names will be high. Because the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest Old Testament saint that ever lived. Okay? You ever consider that? That just boggles the mind. The biggest loser the church-age ever produced, if he's born again and part of the bride, his eternal state is higher than the most rewarded Old Testament believer. And that's John the, John the Baptist. Among those born among women, there's, been, there's arisen none greater than John the Baptist. He was more humble than Moses. He was more intimate than David. He was a greater friend than Abraham. He was the pinnacle of believers in the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ himself testified to that. Of those born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And there is a position, there is a name that we will have as Bride of Christ that's above non-bridal names. But the name that's above every other name is the name of Jesus Christ. He is the one that is the most highly exalted because He stands as as humanity's supreme example of absolute subjection to the will of God and the Father. The most humble man that ever lived. If He was less humble than He was, He wouldn't have died for you and me. Because He didn't have to for Himself. He had to for, for me. For you and for me. So those that are that humble themselves will be exalted. And there's many applications for that. And those who magnify themselves, think about it. When you are magnifying yourself, when you're self-promoting, what are you really doing? You are imitating the one who declared in his five I wills the prototype of the self-promoter. You are becoming an imitator of Satan. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will take my seat in the assembly in the mountain recesses of the north. I will be like the Most High God. Satan in his rebellion was a self-promoter, a self having been self-persuaded righteous type. And you want to follow that pattern? Hmm. Be prepared to be brought down 
Because our God is a jealous God, and he will not tolerate you to imitate that false God that Satan is. All right. Well, this is the uh, the issue here. We have eight minutes remaining, which is uh, terrible. <laughs> well, what are we going to do in eight minutes? Uh, let's flip over to Matthew 19. And I'll give you a, a sneak peek. How about that? A preview. We've been in Luke for so long, it's uh, interesting that now we get back to uh, a couple of episodes in Matthew before we can, well, this, this divorce issue in Matthew before we move on to Jesus blessing the children, which is what you have in Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. So, as we look at Matthew 19, and you'll spot it, um, Look down in Matthew 19, you glance down to verses 13 through 15. What do you see there? Children who were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. And he says, let the children alone. That this issue there in, in uh, verses 13 through 15 matches our very next section in Luke. In Luke 18, uh, verses 15 through 17. So in between verse 14 and 15 now in Luke... Before we can move on in Luke 18 from verse 14 to verse 15, we have to uh, pick up these, this episode here in Matthew 19, also a parallel in Mark 10, where um, the Pharisees are coming to him with divorce questions. And they're trying to trap him. And the trap isn't what you think. Um, because they've been, they've been trying to trap him for, for weeks, for months they've been trying to trap him. Uh, they've, they've wanted him dead since the Galilean ministry. They still want him dead all the more so. They're right now putting uh, schemes into effect to uh, accomplish his murder. And uh, when they come to him with his divorce question, testing him, verse 3 of Matthew 19, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Okay. They are... Um, laying a trap not only for him but also setting themselves up for the uh, for who's going to dominate the Pharisees after Jesus is done. All right, because they already know they're they're getting this man killed. This man is going to die, and they're, they they've guaranteed that they've they've dedicated themselves to that. And so the real snare here is as they're testing him, the real snare is, is that they are trying to get him to choose sides in their own debate. Because this was fiercely debated. This was a big feature in the distinction between the, the two dominant schools of Pharisee thought. I'm going to give you a reading out of the Mishnah. I'm going to give you the description of, of uh, Shammai and Hillel and the different Pharisee schools here behind this. But... This idea of divorce for any reason was one school of thought. And then the other school of thought had a very uh, conservative uh, view on divorce, uh, where only sexual immorality was the only permitted uh, situation there. And so trying to get the Lord to come down on the side of either one school or the other school was the trap. And I think the big, the big trap was one that didn't even really concern him. But uh, the idea being then that as soon as they kill him, then whatever side he was in agreement with, okay, 
they get tarnished. They get uh, say, oh, well, yeah, yeah, you you were in agreement with this antichrist we put to death, right? You were in agreement with this heretic. And so the other side that he doesn't agree with can gain some ascendancy, right, over uh, over their compatriots in that uh, in that debate. Well, you know, it's it is what it is. I don't know that. Um, <laughs> We'll probably illustrate it with a couple of other things that way as well. Because it's, it's just manipulation is what it is. It's political manipulation. It's just trying to get an upper hand over uh, this, this other group and uh, finding a point of leverage in, by which you can, uh, you can have an edge over, over where they are and what they're doing. And it's uh, you know, par for the course. It's the way this world works, isn't it? So, all right. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for this study. And if you delay long enough to give us next week, then we'll be back in this chapter looking at uh, looking at divorce, looking at marriage, looking at Adam and Eve and thankful, Father, that our Lord, uh, our Lord stood for Scripture every chance he had. And uh, that's the pattern for us as well. Father, what does the Scripture say? And uh, we may not like it, but it, what it says is what we believe and what we live by. And uh, and I just thank you. And we do like it, Father. Well, we like it. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name. Amen.